Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another pilot for what will become known as What If Weekly. This time, since we've got ourselves an RSS feed and a podcast feed, we'll be doing a second pilot. Elsewhere on this RSS feed, you can catch the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast each and every Wednesday, alongside other new series in the summer. Yes, that's right. We'll be staying away from YouTube for the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. Keep it on Acast, Spotify, Apple and many others, wherever you get your podcasts for the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast every Wednesday. Before we start, let's get those beautiful, beautiful algorithms boosted with a quick five-star review on the show. Now we've got all that bump and admin out of the way, let's review today's show. And we'll be talking about Leipzig versus Frankfurt at the top of the Bundesliga, Manchester United versus West Ham in the Premier League. But first, we have to start with the North London derby. There is only one place we can start, and that is to North London and to the Emirates Stadium, where Arsenal played Tottenham. Arsenal had won just two of the last seven, while Spurs had won one in the last four away in the Premier League. Spurs had not beaten a top half side away from home since that infamous 6-1 win at Old Trafford in October. The Omens weren't good against them in terms of North London derbies away from home in the Premier League era either, as they had only won just twice away at Arsenal since 1993. The first of those wins came in the very first season in May 93 with a 3-1 win at Highbury, thanks to a goal from Teddy Sheringham. In the most recent of those away wins in the North London derby, in the league at least, Tottenham beat Arsenal 3-2 thanks to a certain Gareth Bale inspiring a comeback from 2-0 down. This weekend, they both came back off Europa League wins at home to Dynamo Zagreb in Tottenham's case and away in Athens at Olympiacos for Arsenal's case. Mikel Arteta was quoted in the build-up that Arsenal created their own mistakes, something which the Spanish manager spun as a positive, meaning that once the mistakes become eradicated, they'll come good and become stronger and therefore obviously be able to challenge for the Champions League places in the top four, amongst other things. 
So what we had going into the game on Sunday afternoon were two defensively sound teams, both in the top five for goals against per 90. While Spurs were quite incisive, showing that the uh, Spurs were incisive because of their goals to shot on target ratio is better than anybody else in the Premier League. However, they're still overperforming their XG by plus 8-1, which is second only to Manchester United. On the flip side, it could have combusted for Arsenal with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang left out due to ill-discipline, which the rumour mill stated he was late to match day. He didn't even get off the bench and ultimately they didn't even need the Arsenal captain. Going into the match, 54% of my Twitter followers, which were polled, said that Spurs would win with Mourinho having a great record against Arsenal, losing just one in 18 Premier League matches against the club. With Aubameyang's missing, um, Emile Smith-Rowe shuffled out onto the left Martin Odegaard continued through the middle and Bukayo Saka was on the right in behind Alexandra Lacazette. The omens weren't in Arsenal's favour. No North London derby win in the most recent five and they'd won just two games after the eight Europa, Europa League games this season. There was two enticing battles for me on the pitch. You had Kieran Tierney and Gareth Bale on Arsenal's left and you had Son Kyung min and Sergio Regulon versus Bukayo Saka and Cedric Suarez on the right. The master plan was thus for Tottenham Hotspur, sit extremely deep and pick off any Arsenal mistake. It worked last season and it worked earlier on in this season, so why couldn't it work this season? Mourinho was looking for his third successive win as a North London derby manager, something that has never been done in the first three North London derbies as a manager. And I'll admit it, I'm a Jose Mourinho apologist. There's nothing wrong with how he plays. He's got this uh, this Machiavellian win-at-all-the-costs approach. And he was justified in the first 40 minutes. Arsenal's decision-making and the final ball, it wasn't really at it in the first half. There were restricted chances like uh, Smith Rowe hitting the bar from distance. And the master plan, it was going okay and it was scuppered inside about 15 to 20 minutes when Son Heung-Ming pulled up with a hamstring problem. And there you go. The counter-attack threat was gone. It never came back for Tottenham. And the threat down Cedric Suarez's right-hand side was seemingly gone, although Lucas Maura would shift to the left. Um, Eric Lamella came on for Son, and he went central, which showed that Mourinho was pinpointing that right-back weakness, so to speak, for Arsenal. The same weakness, though, was true of Spurs. With Matt Doherty, he was at sea all game alongside his uh, central partner, Davison Sanchez, at right centre-back. The Colombian was made an absolute fool of by Lacazette with a cheeky little nutmeg early on and the Colombian seemed worried of him all game. Lacazette though, he did look ineffectual from open play. Shortly after the half hour, I audibly shouted in an empty house. I'll admit that is outrageous. And of course, what I was talking about was Eric Lamella's low Rabona goal through a crowd, one of the best goals you'll see all weekend besides a certain Burnley winger, which we'll talk about later on. The XG tallied it up at 0.003. So, the master plan. The stage was set. Mourinho, masterclass. Arsenal, though, despite all of this going against them, they were undeterred. Cedric Suarez hit a post, and Kieran Tierney finally exploited that Spurs wariness down the right. He burst past past Doherty, and he found Martin Odegaard. Odegaard got a deflection, equaliser, in before the half-time break. Spurs were sucker-punched, and it didn't get any better for the Lily Whites, if we're still allowed to call them that. Harry Kane up front, he didn't look fit at all. He didn't get going until the last 10 minutes when Spurs finally got desperate. Gareth Bale wasn't at it whatsoever. And Eric Lamella played like he wanted to get a red card, whichever way he needed to do it, uh, which would obviously come later. 
Son Heung-ming didn't really have time to affect the game. Lucas Moura was probably the only Spurs player in the lineup who had too much zip about him. Deli Alli didn't do too much either. And I think it was Kane's inability to drop deep and link play expertly, which had been lauded all season. As you know, he's doing this fault 10 that everyone's uh, made up all of a sudden. Um, the lack of that was felt for Spurs and Arsenal grew into the second half as a result. The first 15 minutes for Spurs and more specifically Jose Mourinho was spent trying to fix the problem area of right, the right hand side. Gareth Bale wasn't doing defensive duties. He doesn't really do that anyway, but he was keenly felt after that first goal for Arsenal. He was hauled off after 57 minutes, didn't look too pleased about it, but Moussa Sissoko was on to shield the uh, the channel and do a job with uh, Tangai Ndombele going more centrally in a 4-2-3-1, which could revert to a 4-3-3 should Tottenham find that goal. And uh, Mora came onto the right-hand side as a result. That experiment lasted all of four minutes as Deli Alli came on for Ndombele and Deli, as I said, wasn't too effective in that role. It was a problem because of Sanchez's wariness, that right-hand side for Spurs and Doherty's lack of confidence. And Doherty hasn't really hit the ground running for Spurs. I didn't understand the sign when it happened and still less clear now, really. He played well at Spurs. He played well at Wolves in a right wing-back role. He doesn't play there for Spurs. I don't think he's ever going to play there for Spurs. He's never played there for Ireland, and he's shown to be more effective at Wolves in that wing-back role, and he's shown to be more effective, at least with confidence going forward, and that doesn't tally up with what Spurs try to do, especially in big games like this when they sit deep. And it was this problem area where Arsenal got their their, uh, winner from with uh, Sanchez diving in, Luckily for Lacazette, he mishit the shot, which gave the referee a much clearer idea to give a penalty. Because if Lacazette hit the shot and Sanchez was able to get a block, even if he got the man and the ball, who knows what VAR would have done in that situation, let's be honest. But because he mishit it, Sanchez just got the man, played right through him, and Lacazette dusted himself down, scored the winner. Postage stamp, if you can have a postage stamp in the bottom corner, (laughs) and the penalty would be the winner. Tottenham would be sent down to 10 men. When Eric Lamella fulfilled his duty of getting a red card when he elbowed Kieran Tierney, he could have seen red, in all honesty, one or two challenges prior and did walk a tightrope for much of the match. The problem I have with Mourinho's Machiavellian sit-deep pick-off mistakes is there is absolutely no contingency plan. Spurs only looked to threat from set pieces, from which Harry Kane did find the net later on, but he was ruled out to be offside and he would hit the post from a free kick with Davison Sanchez's rebound cleared off the line by Gabriel, who did have a great game. And like I say, I am a Mourinho defender. There are those who say with what he has at his disposal, so he's got Bale, Son, Kane, which should be the, one of the best front threes in the league, that he should just go for it. But his game plan did work in the past two North London derbies. It was working for almost a half here. It was scuppered by the Son injury. The counter-attack was no longer viable, especially with Gareth Bale underperforming as he did. It was, well... In theory, it was scuppered by the red card, but the red card, I think, seemed to give Tottenham a boost somehow and it gave them a desperation feel, which seemed them actually go for it. Can either side get into the Champions League, though? I think they'll have to go... Well, Arsenal will have definitely have to go via the route of the Europa League. They did sit 14 points off the top four with two games in hand before play today, and that's now at 11. So if they win those games in hand, they're now five points. So it's not... Not too much of a deficit, but with the the huge gulf of teams in front of them, you've even got Villa down there, you've got West Ham, Everton, all these teams to get past. 
Spurs are better positioned despite this loss today. Um, but it won't be Chelsea, I don't think, who they'll target because Chelsea, I think, are on the up with Tuchel defensively solid, which is a hallmark of a top four team. I do think Chelsea will be quite comfortably a Champions League team next season. I think it'll be Leicester who will be the target of those teams fighting from underneath. So you've got Liverpool, if they're looking to arrest their slide. West Ham, despite loss today, Everton, despite loss on Saturday as well, will be looking to extract Leicester from that top four place. But it should go all the way down to the end of the season if Tottenham can keep up their form. Liverpool should reach some kind of form. You've got to believe they will, unless they prioritise the Champions League. So We'll be remaining in England after this short, short break, and we'll be going to Old Trafford for the final kickoff on Saturday in England. Welcome back. So going into this game, West Ham were one of the form teams of the Premier League, would you believe? you? If you, someone told you that this time last season, they'd have kicked you in the teeth. Anyway, they've got 26 points from the last 12 Premier League games, which is only behind Manchester City. They've won four of their last eight away in the Premier League. Whilst Manchester United's home form has picked up of late, they've got the second best home form in the Premier League over the last eight games, winning five of those and drawing two. The only loss, I think, coming at home to Sheffield United in one of the most bizarre results of the season. Manchester United, though, could reduce the gap at the top to 11 points from Manchester City, who are officially tagged by media now as champions-elect, which, let's be honest, they probably are. Anyway, West Ham could draw parity with Chelsea in the race for the Champions League with a win. But the omens weren't there in terms of David Moyes' involvement, as he hasn't beaten Manchester United since being their manager in the 2013-14 season, drawing twice and losing four times. And according to Opta in their um, in their tally of counting penalty shootout wins as draw, Moyes has only won three times against Manchester United, the last of which coming on the opening weekend of the 2012-13 season in August, 1-0, with a Mario Fellaini winner. The time before that was a 3-1 win in 2010, and the first time was via a Duncan Ferguson header in April 2005. Now, as a Manchester United fan, personally, I was worried going into the match. Not the best home form, although it's picked up slightly recently, and Manchester United don't have the best track record against a team with a significantly less possession share and a very deep low block. Both things that West Ham possessed going into this game. West Ham were hamstrung by Jesse Lingard's unavailability. Of course, he couldn't play against his parent club whilst Pablo Fornals was injured going into the contest. Jared Bowen came in and Moyes reverted to an ultra-defensive system in that first half. It could have been a 3-5-2 if they had been a bit more adventurous but it was more a 5-4-1 with Jared Bowen seeping back into a, a roll out wide. And if West Ham were full strength, I'd like to think it would have been an all 4-2-3-1 affair and a, a quite a good match as it was earlier on in the season, but it wasn't a patch on the, uh, the comeback win for Manchester United earlier on at the London Stadium. However, West Ham did have a key battle in the area that I uh, had a look at before the game. Mikel Antonio versus Victor Lindoff. It looked to have only one winner. Lindelof had been bullied before, especially at Old Trafford, but it wouldn't go that way, would it? The match, obviously, early on, it needed one piece of magic to win it. It didn't come down to magic, it just needed one bit of football to win it, and that's what won it in the end. It was likely to come from Bruno Fernandes, the man with 46 goals and assists this season. I don't think officially that he's added added to it from the corner that he did, but he played a big part. Another area that I thought could decide the match was Scott McTominay breaking from that double pivot to effect like he did against Leeds and many more 
many more obviously including West Ham in the uh, two sides last meeting which was a 1-0 after extra time winning the FA Cup fifth round. Man United obviously wouldn't be afforded those extra 30 minutes in league regulation play but these two Fernandez and McTominay kind of would combine. McTominay obviously not to that effect it was from a set piece for the match winner. My thoughts were like this because Manchester United are exceedingly static when they've got a deep low block team ahead of them and they were again today. Dan James on the right, Marcus Rashford on the left, Greenwood up front on his own uh, centrally and I don't think they've figured out how to play against that very, very defensive team. They look better on the counter-attack. United fans like myself are a lot more comfortable playing big teams like Manchester City. I was a lot more confident as a United fan going into the Manchester derby than I was for the game tonight, for example. They've not figured out a regular lock pick in behind the defence except from getting fouled in the box and winning a penalty and they wouldn't find that lock pick today either. Rashford found space early on but his header went wide, put too much power on it. Uh, Greenwood found the gloves of Fabianski who tipped it onto the post but that was again from restricted from distance and that was as a result of stretching West Ham for the probably one and only time in the first half. A dour West Ham who very rarely looked to go forward. Mikel Antonio was isolated up front. Um, even with West Ham's height, even though the goal did come from a set piece, I didn't think that there would be any solace for United in set pieces, attacking or defensive. I mean, United have got height. You've got McTominay, Maguire. Lindelof's fairly good in the air. But West Ham's height is you've got Craig Dawson, Issa Diop, Thomas Socek, Vladimir Sofal, Mikel Antonio, Declan Rice, all good in the air. But West Ham offered little to nothing at all. Their first shot came in the hour and it was a fairly safe block out in for a corner from... Uh, Antonio and Maguire and United's goal Bruno to McSauce McTominay glanced ahead on to uh, Craig Doss who had a bit of a lapse in concentration probably his only bad minute there haphazardly left the ball for Sufal to clear for the corner and then obviously heading into his own net he was um, lauded as a Watford reserve coming in to just tally up the numbers earlier on in the season but injuries came up and he came to the fore announced himself by kicking a Southampton player square in the face on Christmas um, and then obviously in a match scenario he didn't just go around someone's house and then he's sort of gone from strength to strength and he's now one of the most underrated central defenders in the Premier League probably gone beyond underrated now he's been that good Moyes he did look to change things up in the second half in all fairness to him he'd moved Ben Johnson from the left out to the right and played more attacking moved Johnson into midfield didn't necessarily work they did play far at the back it was scrapped, that experiment, though, with uh, Manuel Lanzini inside Ben Rama coming on. West Ham were more offensive, but the game, as a result, was more open. Even then, though, Manchester United failed to capitalise. And what summed the game up for me most is Issa Diop. It's a very, very safe passage of play. He just received a square pass. And it was a loose touch. He just bounced off his shin somehow. Dan James latched onto it. And then a loose combination from Dan James and Bruno Fernandes and the ball was recycled again. It just summed the whole match up. Two teams, not the best. Man United, very slack. They didn't need to be great to win it. They always look safe though, and they got a 1-0 that they'll be very, very happy with. They move back into second place. They now look safe in terms of getting a Champions League spot, unless they have a very sheer drop-off with uh, Europa League commitments, although they could be out of that by Thursday, and they also could be out of the FA Cup on the uh, this weekend coming as well. Does this mean, though, that Manchester United's season peters out? They're in the, they are in the driving seat to confirm successive Champions League qualifications. Only the second time since Sir Alex Ferguson retired that they'll be able to do that. 
Um, 11 points away from Man City, it's hard to make up on any team, let alone a Pep Guardiola team, let alone a Pep Guardiola Manchester City team. So their only way of keeping the season going now in terms of competitiveness, you'd say, is through those cup competitions. And Manchester United haven't won anything in a long, long time. So they'll be after that, especially. Mason Greenwood, there was questions about him leading the line as a focal point going into the game. Obviously, Edison Cavani and Anthony Martial out. He struck the woodwork twice, so he could on another day he could have had a couple of goals. Um, quickly, his last Premier League goals came in two separate matches against West Ham. Last season's goals obviously have dried up. I think that's come as a bit of a deliberate sacrifice to become more creative. He's providing more assists. Let's not forget, he is still a teenager and he's... His XG is leveling out like a project restart he scored. He scored something daft like nine goals from like 1.4 XG. It was crazy numbers. But I do believe he can link, he can drop deep. He moves into the channels well. He's definitely not a penalty box forward, but as the, you know, Alan Shearer and Jermaine Genus and, Alan, and uh, Gary Lineker were saying on Match of the Day this weekend, do those sort of players exist anymore? And I don't think that should be used in the against column for Greenwood in this day and age, it shouldn't be a negative. Manchester City get lauded for their strikerless systems when you've got a, the famous Pep roulette and you've got Phil Foden, Gundy and Bernardo Silva still in front. Torres playing centre-forward when Gabriel Jesus and Aguero don't play, which is you know increasingly more likely as the, uh, as the seasons go on. Some might call it, football manager geeks might call it, like myself, a trequartista, some might call it a lateral trequartista, which I saw quite jokingly on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. And if that is the future, with a more playmaking number nine, with two inside forwards, and United go down that route, instead of signing a centre-forward like Erling Haaland, like many people have been calling out for, they'll probably need a more potent right-winger than Dan James. I'm not, not a mark against Dan James. He's been doing very, very well recently. And he's there for a reason. He's tireless. He's got very good defensive attributes. He runs for 90 minutes. He doesn't stop. But if they are going to play a centre-forward who isn't as prolific as your Lewandowski's, Haaland's, etc. Aguero's of his time, then they'll need two inside forwards who are a lot better at doing that. Can West Ham sustain this run of form? Obviously, they are the second form team in the Premier League. And they are in the top top eight of the teams that are deemed likely to battle for the Champions League, which does include Manchester United. Also includes Leicester, Chelsea, West Ham, Everton, Tottenham, Liverpool. The results this week for teams around them could have gone a lot worse for West Ham. Chelsea dropped points, Everton dropped points, Spurs dropped points, Liverpool still could drop points. So they're still in the thick of it. They've still got games in hand on Chelsea. You know, if it's still in their hands, which is... That's frightening to think of when there's only 10 games to go in the league season. And alongside Everton Leicester, they're the only team that don't have European football as a distraction. So they could be one of those teams that could capitalise on Leicester's injuries. You know, Harvey Barnes, James Madison, James Justin, it looks as though it could be going a different way, same way as it did last season, obviously in spite of their 5-0 win earlier against Sheffield United. After this short break, we'll be heading to the Bundesliga and to a top-of-the-table clash between Leipzig and Frankfurt. Welcome back. And as West Ham were the travelling form team of the Premier League, Frankfurt were exactly playing the same role against what we'd call a superior team in second place. West Ham didn't manage to get the win, but could Frankfurt? So, Frankfurt got 29 of the available last 36 Bundesliga points. 
They've lost just one in the last six away from home. Meanwhile, Leipzig have won six in a row. Four in a row at home in the Bundesliga since a January loss to Dortmund 3-1. The game promised goals, but crucially, it also promised a good defence with uh, Leipzig's goals against record, the best in the Bundesliga. Meanwhile, Frankfurt a fifth in terms of defence. However, Leipzig are 10th, which is aggressively mid-table in the Bundesliga in goals to shots on target ratio, which means they're not entirely incisive. And let's be honest, that particularly showed for the home side going into this game. So in spite of that, Leipzig are high, very high in shot creation. They, I think they're only behind Dortmund in terms of that metric, but they are severely lacking a Timo Werner, for example, a talisman. Before this game, Emil Forsberg, Yusuf Poulsen and Marcel Sabitzer were their joint top goal scorers in the league with just five goals. Meanwhile, Angelino, as a left-back, was their second highest goal scorer with four. Meanwhile, on the other end of the uh, pitch and the other end of the uh, goal, goal distribution charts, you've got Andre Silva scoring 19 goals behind only Robert Lewandowski in the Bundesliga. Fortunately, though, for the home team, Silva was kept very, very quiet in this match. It was a match between two entirely flexible teams. Leipzig played more of a 4-4-2, 4-2-2, you know, classic Red Bull formation, which sort of lapsed into a 4-2-3-1, with Forsberg dropping in deep in the uh, sort of a free world, where Frankfurt played more of a 3-5-2, straying slightly away from their usual 3-4-2-1 that they've played this season. Leipzig have been known to play that as well, so it looked, I thought going into this match it would be like for like, but Klosterman wasn't on. Halstenberg took his left back place and Klosterman is more used to playing a left wing back than Halstenberg. So Klosterman though would come on for injured, the injured Diopo Meccano in the first half, but regardless, Leipzig stuck to the far at the back. And it was a hungover Leipzig from Champions League exit to Liverpool uh, during midweek and they played very, very similar on Sunday. In midweek in Budapest, they played slow, they played lumbering, uh, with the exception of Emil Forsberg, who was given a free role this weekend, and he was probably one of their only shining lights going forward. The Swede, he, uh, he was absolutely everywhere. He provided Justin Clivert with an absolute gilt-edged chance seven minutes in, but Frankfurt keeper Kevin Trapp was equal to it, and that, that was the theme of the day, really. I probably give Forsberg man of the match, but unfortunately for him, there wasn't any composure whatsoever in front of him. He got a phantom assist. He provided a a quirky little shot outlet from a uh, free kick on the wide um, provided a shot but it rebounded to Willie Auburn the Leipzig defender put the ball in the net but he was offside the pattern for the rest of the game was set the territory was all Leipzig the possession was mainly Leipzig but they did remain a threat from uh, Philip Kostic on the left Andre Silver and those two linking up as they have done so brilliantly all season Kostic usually averages and assists every other game Andre Silver has a goal an assist per 90 when he can help it. I mean, Kostic, by far and away, the most dangerous Ryan track. I mean, Eunice was good as well, I thought, too. He pushed high in the press, which made it almost like a 3-5-2, but they were more like a Terry Venables Christmas tree formation, so to speak, in a 3-5-1-1, with Eunice playing a similar role to Forsberg. I thought he was played all right as well. Leipzig, on the other hand, strict in their 4-2-2-2 setup. I thought they were bizarre in playing Sarlot from the right, it doesn't make any sense when I was watching. It doesn't make any sense now, especially when Christopher Nkunku came on. He did well. Maybe there was Nkunku was tired from the week, but as soon as Nkunku came on, he just breathed new life into Leipzig. Um, the likes of Poulsen, etc. They were all thwarted. 
Il Sanko was solid in defence for Frankfurt, in spite of Leipzig bursting out of the blocks in the second half. Clive at work trapped into a meaningful save in, within like the first minute, and then Forsberg inevitably got the rebound, his sixth Bundesliga goal of the season, and he's now outright top scorer for Leipzig in the league. It was the two bright sparks of Leipzig combining indirectly in what was a summation of the game, really, for Leipzig. It was pretty lax display. Nothing seemed to go really right for him, and they sort of looked out on that goal. But Frankfurt would grow and grow into the game. Yunis and Kostic were linking up. Yunis uh, forcing a save at Galashki on the hour. Before a minute later, Andre Silva was found on the left channel. He cut it back to Japanese midfielder Daichi Kamada, and he leveled the, leveled the scores up, and it was a pretty timid attempt at a save from the Hungarian. Palmed it into his side netting. And the danger for Frankfurt always seemed as though it were through that left channel, either through Silver drifting out wide, Kostic staying out wide or cutting inside. He did look a threat when he was cutting inside as well. And it would be the 11th game where Frankfurt would come back to secure the points. And for both sides, ultimately, it was a matter of the final ball being slightly off. More often than not, it was Kostic on the left for Frankfurt, Kleivert on the left for Leipzig. Frankfurt probably suffered more from a lack of movement centrally. Andre Silva was hauled off for Luka Jovic, and despite the change in personnel, there's no change in, you know, the incisiveness. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the pitch, Leipzig's chance creation was severely lacking too. Yusuf Paulson was vacant for the majority. He'd be subbed off, and again, change in personnel, no change in fortunes really. The space would grow in behind Frankfurt, and Cuckoo did look sharp, but it came to nothing. And I believe that Leipzig were missing Angelino extremely <laughs> a lot he was he would stretch the play on the left he's also one of the top scorers for Leipzig but again they were plodding they could have been caught on the counter but again Frankfurt were indecisive and perhaps if Unkunku started Leipzig would have got all three points this Sunday but I ask can Leipzig win the Bundesliga or what will it take in the future and I do think what it will take in the future is for Nagelsmann to stay at the job there is a temptation for Hansi Flick to be tempted by the national job, which would of course lead Nagelsmann to the uh, up the uh, up the German football system, and where he's inevitably going to coach Bayern at some stage. But I believe for Leipzig to be successful, he's got, Nagelsmann's got to stay for the for the interim anyway. Flick is probably considering his time at Bayern, his relationships with the higher ups including with uh, Hassan Salihamidzic, aren't the best buying coaches, don't tend to last too long. It sounds stupid, he's just won six trophies. He's barely been there 18 months, but the Bayern Munich coaches don't last too long. Ask Ancelotti, ask Kovac, etc. The list goes on. Leipzig are tactically flexible, which is a plus. And if they can maintain the high press, high energy, obviously, as stats show... In the Premier League, at least, Aston Villa are the only team that pressed more than they did last season. That high press, high energy with the truncated season might not be the time to do it, but moving forward, if they can accept they won't win the league this season by that form of play, but do it next season, they could do it. Essentially, just don't do what they did midweek against Liverpool and again today against Frankfurt, and they can win it. The Leipzig, what we know today and in midweek, aren't as inevitable as Bayern. They're not one of those... Teams that you just know are going to win, like Bayern obviously did again this weekend. And I believe they're lacking a true goal scorer instead of like a bunch of, well, bunch of playmakers like Danny Olmo, which might go against my point that I mentioned earlier about Greenwood and Manchester City, etc. But still keeping with the uh, top half of the Bundesliga, will Frankfurt qualify for the Champions League? 
Now Wolfsburg, the team above them in third, don't look like dropping, but it remains two places into far between Wolfsburg, Frankfurt, Dortmund and Leverkusen. Eight points separate the far after today's games, and outside Bayern and Dortmund, Frankfurt do have the best attack. You've got Andre Silva coming in with 19 in 23 games. Kostic is magnificent. Luka Jovic has returned to uh, form an integral part of the team. They just need Ante Rebic and Sebastian Haller, and they've got the band back together for the Niko Kovac team. They have wavered slightly, uh, losing at Bremen, drawing at Stuttgart, and drawing, t- uh, drawing against Leipzig. But they had picked up 28 points from an available 30 between 9- December the 19th and February the 20th. And they do have a win in that run under Bayern under their belt. So, crucial matches. They've got three crucial matches between now and the end of April, which is away trips to Dortmund, Gladbach and Leverkusen. Those three are very daunting and they'll decide the fate between Europa League and Champions League. Next up for Frankfurt, though, is a home tie with Union Berlin, which is just as crucial as the other games, because if they can maybe extend some uh, distance between themselves and Dortmund and Leverkusen, then they could pull away even before those three fixtures. And they've got Dortmund away in the first game after the international break. Meanwhile, for RB Leipzig, they've got Armenia Bielefeld on Friday night. And then at the other side of the international break is quite possibly the game of the season in Germany. They've got Bayern Munich at home. Now, unfortunately, they can't go top with a win unless Bayern falter this coming week since they've got a four-point cushion. But nonetheless, still an exciting game. After a short break, we'll be going through the top five leagues with the results in brief Welcome back. Let's start things off with the Premier League. And the Premier League weekend started at St. James's Park on Friday night. The Heat won't be entirely off Newcastle boss Steve Bruce in spite of a last-minute 1-1 draw with Villa. Leeds and Chelsea played out an entertaining goalless draw, but it wasn't the goal fest we expected. Nor was Palace's 1-0 win over West Brom, but let's be honest, we didn't expect that to be a goal fest either. Burnley got a stunning 2-1 win courtesy of a stunning Dwight McNeil winner at Goodison Park whilst Manchester City capitalised on Fulham's second-half collapse in a 3-0 win in West London. Brighton finally outperformed their XG to win 2-1 at the St Mary's Stadium, and as aforementioned, Leicester romped home to a 5-0 win over Sheffield United, the managerless Sheffield United. Tonight, later on tonight, Wolves play host to Liverpool. In Italy, Lazio, in a quirkily arranged 2pm Friday kickoff, needed a late winner to beat Crotone 3-2. Another team to score three at home and win that Friday were Atalanta, who beat Spezia 3-1 thanks to two from Mario Pasolic. Sassuolo also bagged three, leapfrogging their opponents Hellas Verona into eighth. Fiorentina's four was enough to all but confirm safety. Dusan Vlahovic's hat-trick sinking Benevento 4-1 away. Genoa and Udinese shared the spoils 1-1, whilst Bologna romped home to a 3-1 win over Sampdoria. The combustible Hernani settled a win for Parma 2-0 from the spot at home to Roma, whilst Inter Milan continued their run thanks to a late, late Lautaro Martinez winner in Turin against Torino. Another Turin club fared better, with Juventus putting their Champions League exit behind them with a 3-1 win at Cagliari, thanks to a Cristiano Ronaldo hat-trick in the first half. And to round things off, on Sunday night, Rino Gattuso came back to haunt his former club Milan in a 1-0 win in the San Siro for Napoli. Heading back to Germany briefly, Borussia Mönchengladbach's poor form continued in a 3-1 loss to Augsburg. Meanwhile, late Robin Quires on goal saved Mainz in a 1-0 win over Freiburg to dredge them out of the relegation zone. Max Kruser helped Union Berlin in their Europa League aspirations once more, scoring in a 2-1 win against FC Köln. 
Leon Goretzka, Serge Gnabry and Robert Lewandowski all netted as inevitable Bayern 1-3-1 in Bremen to extend their league lead at the top to four points. Wolfsburg hit Schalke for five to improve their Champions League's hopes whilst ending Schalke's own hopes in the Bundesliga. Dortmund got back on track with a 2-0 win at home to Hofer. Yusuf Makoku scoring in that one. Armenia Baylor felt stunned by Leverkusen 2-1 away while Stuttgart kept their impressive run going with a 2-0 win at home to Hoffenheim. In Spain, the Valencia derby on Friday night was settled by a sole Roger Marti goal for Levante. Alaves and Cadiz shared a 1-1 draw as Osasuna, Vail Valladolid, Celta Vigo and Athletic Club all shared the points in respective 0-0 draws. In the third goal of stalemate of the weekend, Atletico failed to breach Getafe away from home. Meanwhile, City rivals Real left it late to beat Elche at home. Karim Benzema bagging twice to save their skin once more. German Sanchez's fortuitous winner was the difference between Granada and Real Sociedad, whilst Villarreal won 3-1 at Eibar to keep their Europa League hopes alive. Meanwhile, Sevilla won the derby, 1-0 at home to Betis. Barcelona hosts Huesca tonight and a win will put them back in second place and close the gap to Atletico Madrid. And to round things off, we go to Ligue 1 and France. Lyon missed the chance to go top, needing a late equaliser away at Ram. Wabi Kazri's winner at Saint-Etienne away, Andre put daylight between Levert and the relegation zone. Milik Tovan and Cuisance got the goals to get San Paoli's reign as Marseille manager going whilst Montpellier and Nîmes shared the Derby Day spoils. Bordeaux whipped Dijon 3-1 to keep them as keen as mustard rooted to the bottom of the table, whilst Lons and Metz, two surprise packages of the season, played out a 2-2 draw to stay 6th and 7th respectively. Lorient got a point at home to Nice to stay above the dotted line, whilst Rennes snuck a 1-0 win at home to Strasbourg to stay 8th. The supposed game of the weekend between Monaco and Lille ended goalless, which left PSG with a chance to go top with a win. However, they lost at home late on to Nantes 2-1. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the second pilot of today's What If Weekly. We might do a couple more episodes between now and the end of the season, but we'll be kicking things off every single week with the start of the 2021-2022 season. As I said before, give us a nice five-star review to get that lovely little algorithm going. And you can find us on here every Wednesday with the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast from here on in. Leaving all that YouTube podcast thing behind, going audio only. I'll see you next Wednesday and thank you for listening again. See you there. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.